0: Shut up and sit down. Watching Hill House is like therapy, except my therapist doesn't have a broken neck. Just as scary, though. Welcome <laughs> to Pop Craft, where we'll autopsy the screenplays behind your favorite films and TV shows. I'm your host, Carl Albert, and sitting here with me today is Hannah Schuschelsky. How are you doing, Hannah?
1: <laughs> I'm doing good. You stuttered on the last name for a second there.
0: I, I forgot it for a second. I uh, had early onset Alzheimer's.
1: That's not a joke. That actually runs in your family. <laughs> That's why it's
0: a joke. <laughs> no, now it's just sad. Comedy's about truth. And so is horror. That's me transitioning. Oh my God. Actually, I'm not going to transition into our show just yet. We're first going to get what? to the Patreon. Please consider donating to the Patreon. I'd greatly appreciate it. You'll get access to behind-the-scenes content, extra content, the outtakes, including Hannah's hilarious thoughts on uh, snow lizards. And They
1: don't look like lizards. They don't. They don't look like lizards.
0: And if you have no idea what we're talking about and want to know, consider donating to the Patreon. Anyway, or leave a review, subscribe. Anything you can do to help the show would be greatly appreciated. Follow me on social media. I'll leave all this in the liner notes below. And yeah, that was our slow burn opening for I'm trying to connect it to. I'm really working on these transitions. My transitions are not as smooth as the transitions of The Haunting of Hill House. And specifically, the first episode is what we'll be discussing today, what some might call a pilot. Stephen sees a ghost. Now, for those who don't know, a pilot is sort of the the test episode, the first episode of a TV series it uh not every show has a pilot in fact the haunting of hill house was ordered straight to series so it did not technically have a pilot but we use pilot
1: now interchangeably to refer to the first episode of anything because it is technically still the pilot regardless of whether it was sold as one
0: right it's definitely it's a term that's used pretty broadly and i hope you don't hear us sipping coffee i hope this is something i can cut but we'll
1: i kind of hope they do
0: okay It's a, I don't know, maybe it'll awaken something in the audience.
1: Was that good for you guys?
0: (laughs) And, uh, so yeah, The Haunting of Hill House, Stephen sees a ghost. We'll jump right into things. I want to open up this discussion of The Haunting of Hill House uh, by talking about the opening of The Haunting of Hill House. This is, as I have quite literally stated, a slow burn opening it's in the screenplay itself eight pages which is typically not something people say you can get away with that's you know a lot of times when they talk about teasers or the openings of episodes kind of you know what teases the audience of what to expect in the rest of the episode it, you're, you're spo- supposed to sort of keep in a four to five page range but with these streamers now and with this prestige tv you really have more room operate you know in a broader level like it's not like breaking bad which had like a two-page teaser or something like that. well there's
1: no there's never going to be a commercial on the haunting of hill house so it does not matter how long the acts are
0: right and it's slow burn but that's not to say that it's boring i think it's a great opening that that doesn't
1: mean the same at all
0: yeah it's very economical it establishes the characters uh you know the cranes their family unit it establishes hill house that something is wrong with hill house right i
1: think more than anything it establishes Hill House in a way that I guess I don't know what I'm really saying here. Come back to me.
0: Uh, it establishes the geography of the house, which is, I think is an understated thing um, that you don't hear a, a enough discussion about that in relation to writing. Where this is actually a really important skill for writers to have to be able to lay out on the page, the screenplay page, the geography of a location. Where is the living room in relation to the kitchen? Where in, in the case of Hill House, where are all the kids' bedrooms in relation to each other? What is the the hall? in look like, and you can discuss that on the page, especially with a show like Hill House, that is so centered around this one location that this iconic location that you must understand to an extent. Now, I do think Hill House is intentionally sort of labyrinthine, like hard to fully get a, a feel for exactly where everything is. Right. But there is a general geography that they establish early on in the show, and even in this first episode, in this teaser, that I think is actually really crucial and is something you know, I think for a, where a lot of writers could learn. And then the last thing that I really think they highlight in this opening is the tone, which again is something, especially in a horror, that I don't think can be understated the importance of. You know, you open actually with something that's really not by any sort of stretch of at least the typical exec think exciting. It's Steven, who's sort of our introductory POV into the world, arguably the protagonist, although it's really an ensemble show. Yeah. and The
1: protagonist know- of this pilot, but right. absolutely not the core protagonist of the show.
0: You know, he just monologues about theme, basically, and the geography of Hill House. While we look at Hill House and see sort of empty rooms, like rooms in the middle of being, you know, refurnished, uh, pictures of the family, the kids and it establishes this eerie i mean the classic gothic horror tone right it gives you the feel for it and the whole uh, slow build of tension in that opening does with Steven hearing Nell crying going to check on his sister and Hugh coming in mm-hmm. it, it keeps you asking questions i guess is what you could say is it you begin with okay so what's what's hill house this is hill house what's going on in hill house okay who's this kid who's crying who's he going okay it's his little sister Who's the bent neck lady? You know, why is she scared of the bent neck lady? Oh, it's someone she's uh, imagined, or is it? Like, this is, you know, this is a ghost show going in. So you're like, okay, is this like a real ghost? And eventually you lead up then to that final scare, which is relatively understated, too, of Mm -hmm. the bent neck lady just floating out of the shadows, like really into view. And I think it gives you a perfect idea of what to expect from this show a slow burn, very character focused, family focused, gothic drama. I agree. The next thing that I sort of wanted to touch on, and it is even sort of included in the opening, is the notion of subtext and how subtext is utilized in this show. I think a lot of—we talked about Star Wars. A lot of times the characters just say what they think or what they feel. And Hill House, I think, does a really good job, not to say that they're never just arguing about something very straightforward— is this house haunted? Is it not? Like, but there's always a subtext to it. Like, am I mentally ill? Am I scared? You know, am I projecting my traumas onto things that right. you learn? And then likewise, there's a lot that we learn about their family history throughout the episode through the subtext. So whether, even if it's just sort of in a, a passing reference to, uh, Luke's, you know, back in whatever hospital or you know whatever rehab, rehab, you know, and so you you get sort of an idea of their history through just like these passing. Well, I
1: think that's timelines. I think that's a function of like the way the show is structured by having multiple timelines because you could say it, it's not even dual timelines; it is multiple timelines right, yeah. with the way that we cut between the far the back back past at Hill House of them all as children, the current like present, which for those of you who haven't seen the show, is like the present. This show takes place in the present over the course of a few days at most. But we're constantly being thrown into these flashbacks from when they were children and all of them younger in their younger adulthoods. And I think there's an interesting way that the show just puts you in the moment. Mm-hmm. There's, I we even talked about it, there's like this little scene in the pilot where Nellie is lying on the couch and the bent neck lady is over her and it's a scene that just starts in like it just starts and we're there and mm-hmm. we're in the moment of Nellie is on the couch Olivia's lying on the floor next to her there's not all of this hemming and hawing about like when is this what exactly is going on here we're just right. living exactly in the moment that the characters are living in at all times and I think we you know we cut to in this episode we have that flashback with um Steve and Shirley when Shirley is pregnant and Steve is trying to sell the book for the first time. And that's another moment where it's like, there's not this over explaining of like when exactly this is, where exactly everybody is in this moment. Because we're just living in that moment of that fight with Steve and Shirley. They trust and the, the audience. And they to, trust the audience. It's like you said, them. the subtext comes out very clearly in that scene without needing necessarily the like the 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 big picture because then what the show does is it creates the big picture right over the course of 10 episodes
0: i think it's nine it's eight or nine i think i want to say it's un- well maybe it's 10 over know. the course of yeah.
1: that many episodes essentially builds out the context more and more so it's like we're always and i think that ends up being a big theme for the show too not to spoil too much but the show is about overlapping time
0: And entirely about
1: overlapping timelines. And the past is the present and the future. And...
0: That you're constantly living the past, even when you think... You're you're not, like, literally in the past, but the past is still there with you. Right. That you can't escape it. That it's right there in the moment. I mean, I think Hill House is a masterpiece in terms of theme and really building them through the characters and the plot. And, that I mean, that's a lot that you can learn um, from this show. Like, specifically, I mean, I don't want to address some of the major spoilers, but... Maybe we'll have a a very intense spoiler section later on. Yeah, no, exactly. That The audience is is trusted to be able to follow along. And in that scene with uh, little baby Nell with the bent-neck lady hanging over her, the reason why it is there, too, is to establish where adult Nell's headspace is in. Yeah. That's how the transition works. And, I mean, that's one of the things that I wanted to talk about, too, is this skillful use of transitions in this show. Mm -hmm. Transitions like geography is another kind of undertaught, understated, uh, important little skill that separates the good writers from the great ones. And one of why, it's one reason why I think, excuse me, this pilot is a great pilot, because you have adult now panicking in that motel room. And you're wondering, okay, what's she freaking out about? What's she thinking about? And then you cut from her to her as a little girl, and having a traumatic experience with the bit neck lady, and you realize, Oh, she's thinking about the bin. Right. Lady, well, right.
1: This, the pilot especially, and I would probably wager to say, like, if I were to rewatch other episodes, that this gets done in a lot of episodes as well. But the flashbacks are used very deliberately not to be like, okay, so we got to jump back in time right now to set some stuff up. But pretty much every time we have a flashback in this pilot, it's like that's exactly where that character's head is right now. 100%. We're we're not just seeing, this is a story that's kind of relevant to what's going on in the present. It's what's going on in the present has now reminded Shirley of this story. And now we're going to go back to where Shirley is in her mind. And it is this sort of, premise and conceit of the past is the present and right which is why some of the or a lot of the choices that they make that expand out the lore of the ghosts and the lore of the house end up being so powerful is because they adhere to that theme
0: right exactly i mean the very structure of, of the show like you're saying i mean that's the simplest way to put it the structure of the show is built to highlight a theme Mm-hmm. That it's multiple timelines because they're talking about how the past is the present, the right. present is the past. Well, in
1: each – so each of the, the first five episodes uh, each focus around one of the crane siblings. There are five cranes um, in each of the first five episodes is a POV in descending age order. And like I said, because the whole show takes place over this two- to three-day period, we're you're basically stacking circles – we're stacking these stories on top of each other until it builds out this grander thing that all congeals and makes perfect sense and gives you all that context that you didn't need, but now that you have it, you have this further understanding. And I think that's an interesting way to think about like the characters, too. Each of them on these like individualistic journeys, unable to see each other, unable to clearly understand each other's stories yeah, and what's yeah. going on with them until over the course of 10 episodes, we've stacked them all together and created this cohesive whole.
0: That's a great point that I hadn't even thought about is like, I, I mean, there's another thing that this show is a masterclass in is how to build sort of a mystery box narrative, how to yeah. like gradually tease out yeah. information and then tie it into the characters and the emotion and The story in the moment, like you said, living in that specific scene, but still continuing the larger mysteries and revealing things over time. And it totally plays into the characters, too. I mean, this is a show that now, having seen it multiple times, it's different on every rewatch. And certainly the biggest difference is between watch number one and rewatch number one, watch number two, if you will. That (laughs) it completely, it changes your perspective now, knowing where everything goes and what everything is and means And and that is perfectly aligned with the characters themselves and how they're sort of so insular and like the the very structure of the show and the pilot itself is you know kind of highlighting this nostalgic past where they were all together where they all loved each other where they were like healthy Mm -hmm. and happy and sort of sidestepping the writing for a second it's lit up in this very colorful saturated nostalgic glow and then you cut to the present they're all separated none of them talk to Mm -hmm. each other that much. And when they do talk to each other, it's a really sort of toxic, vipery biting at one another. And uh, it's lit very darkly, very gray, very blue. And the whole show is about them having to come back together as a family yeah. and to reunite specifically at their home where all of this started it's sort of that classic psychological thing where like you have to confront the trauma to grow past it and that is literally what they do and is a great structure for any show is like if you're gonna do two timelines like have finding that way to sort of parallel them into a larger structure for the show going off of that I I think one of the ways in which the flashbacks are really effective is the ways in which they highlight the characters individual flaws or, or more than highlight how they develop yeah. flaws Because as kids, they don't have the flaws they have as the adults. They haven't developed them yet. They come out of trauma. And one of the things I, I was pitching to you as we were watching it is that I think all of their flaws, all of the five kids and, and their dad, their flaws come out of some sense of guilt that they feel. And like to use this episode and Steve, whose flashbacks we get in this episode as an example, Steve is we as we're introduced to him is the older brother. He's there to protect yeah. his little siblings that's his role we're introduced
1: to steve as a child before we're introduced to steve exactly. as an adult
0: and you get it and he he that's Nelly what he's too. supposed to fulfill and then he doesn't he can't protect them from hill house he is incapable of doing it he's powerless at the same time he doesn't know what's going on he has his eyes shut you know that's the big scene with hugh carrying little steve out As he's like keep your eyes shut and steve mm-hmm. doesn't but he still doesn't see a ghost he doesn't well, understand what's going on you know then from that Steve being confronted with something he can't explain, a threat he can't explain. And so he, like, tries to brush it off because he he doesn't want to feel powerless. He wants right. then to feel like he has some control over the situation, you could say, right. because he feels guilt about it.
1: Well, I think we were talking about this. I think it's interesting. I was of the opinion, and I know a lot of people are, when they watch the first episode, they don't like Steve. And a lot of people don't like Shirley either on Shirley's episode. Those people are wrong. I love Shirley. But a lot of people don't like Steve, and I did not like Steve when I watched this pilot. And you understand Steve more as you watch the series and upon rewatch. And so I was trying to understand him this time.
0: Very difficult for you.
1: (laughs) Very difficult. No, it's honestly not, because he is an understandable character the more you build him out and it's almost like there's a challenge I think to the audience's expectations the way there is to the characters of like we only know Steve in these present moments too we don't know Steve yet and it does feel easy to judge Steve from that first episode from the way he sort of talks to his family and the way he sort of acts about the house and about his family but you were talking about Steve as like the big brother protector and it's like so clear as a child that that's what he is and that's what matters to him and I have to think about like Sort of the it. moment the moment in the pilot which i won't spoil too much for the future what that moment is but the moment when the family leaves hill house it's like you said steve has this guilt over he couldn't protect his family and i also have to wonder if there's this like this like discomfort with the fact that he was protected he like hugh in that moment is protecting the family and he makes Steve close his eyes and carries him out like he's a little boy even right. though he's like he's a big like he's like 13 yeah. and yeah, he carries absolutely. him out like a baby and so i think like i was interesting to sort of hone in on like i think Steve like that that was such a big part of like his identity and the that exactly. has that That's, moment yeah. and for all of the kids like that moment strips away everything from the family but Steve was old enough to have Like, an incredibly, like, concrete sort of value and identity already. Yeah. Like, I think more than anybody, Steve is the character who feels his identity is shaken by all of this. Whereas everybody else, dealing with their own issues, like, have resentments or guilt and shame because of whatever has happened. But Steve is the one who I think feels purely like... When we meet him in the present, and this is what can make me like Steve as a character more, is all five of them are, like you said, in their worst Positions. They're at their worst when we meet them. But Steve, especially, who is like, it's like he's not even the same guy. He's nothing like little him.
0: He's a completely abandoned the like the big brother protector thing where he's like through guilt and resentment and all of that, you know. And and I really do think it's guilt to an extent. I think he seeks a level of control because you see him when he is slightly younger adult, you know, trying to help Luke. Yeah. You know, trying to do things, but he gets so caught up in his own world and then so caught up in the trauma of everything of trying to be like, it wasn't a ghost, like not wanting to face it for what it was, because he never saw it. Yeah. That he just like gives up who he was and the best part of himself. And that's definitely sort of his journey on it. And this show immediately sets it up is you have sweet big older brother protective Steve right in the opening of the show. And then you have Steve who brushes off his siblings concerns right well i mean every one of them who talks flippantly about his younger brother's addiction to go
1: i mean directly truly from young steve in that teaser like coming to Nellie's door and being the first person to check on her before even like their parents are there to check on her and then when we cut to him in the present he's ignoring Nellie's phone call it's
0: an exact parallel exactly. It's, exactly exactly it's very intentional and that's I mean, then that's Steve's arc, right? That's yeah. how they're setting it up is he then has to come back in and then be that uh, protective, you know, nurturing older brother figure again. Yeah. He has to learn how to be that again by the- going back to Hill House.
1: I was thinking about, you are talking about the lighting earlier, about how they they light it so nostalgically. So we go back into the past and it's bright and it's vibrant. And, like, I mean, it's the nostalgia for their innocence and in their childhood. But, like, we're also cutting back to them while they're in Hill House, while they're being haunted a lot of the time while they're being plagued but i almost think there's this element of like the nostalgia or for me like what i feel watching it like the nostalgia i feel for the crane family is this feeling of people being there when the ghosts were around and the fact that like they were all being haunted and (laughs) tortured in this house but stevie was there and stevie's gonna come when you have a nightmare Stevie's going to come to the treehouse or mom is going to sleep on the couch next to you.
0: Right. And it's this thing of you're not... there for each other. Yeah, and
1: that's what the nostalgia is. It's like we never see the Crane family not haunted. We don't see them pre-Hill House. We don't see them like in the car driving there. From the moment we meet them, they're haunted. But the nostalgia, I think, is for like what their family was, that that they they could protect each other. Yeah, no,
0: you're so right. You're so right. It's that they were a real family and then now they've broken apart they, they've let that trauma break them apart and now they have to go back and come back together I mean it's ex- exactly what I was saying is that that's, that's the structure of it the arc of it is that they quite literally have to come back together yeah. physically every one of them even the ones who are maybe not in corporeal form <laughs> by the present day uh, that they all have to come back together and reckon with one another and, and yeah. that's true you know with, with each of them and the, the flashbacks for each of the kids sets that up For all of them about exactly what they have to confront within themselves i mean i think this show also is a testament to you you get a lot of notes uh in hollywood and i think in general frankly like even on the internet if you ever like post scripts or stuff which don't do that don't don't post it for randos on reddit or twitter or wherever don't
1: take advice from a random person on reddit whose name is like cock titillator (laughs) 804 that guy doesn't know anything
0: not about we, Cox either. We, not about Cox, I
1: <laughs> we don't know anything, but we know more than that fucking guy. Exactly.
0: So. Yeah. It's But the thing that you hear a lot is like, oh, that character isn't likable, especially in relation to like women. Women. And, <laughs> and writers talk about this all the time, like that how much they hate this note, but they get it all the time. So it is something to be prepared for if you're trying to make it as a screenwriter. But this show is proof that you don't need likable characters to be invested you, you just need that emotion, that humanity. Mm. You need them to be relatable, is what I would say. Yeah. It's like relatable in that they feel like a real person. So Steve is a fucking asshole, as we get him <laughs> as an adult. Shirley is a hypocrite. Theo is, you know, cold um, and so fucking funny. But she's cold, you know. Luke is uh, an addict, and actually, I mean, I don't want to give too much away about his arc, but we at least know that he's done some pretty terrible things and they kind of soften the blow by not showing us a lot of the worst things he Mm -hmm. did to his family. Mm -hmm. We get all of this, that like these characters are deeply flawed. Even Nell is flawed, right? And yet we kind of fall in love with them and we like go on this emotional journey with them because, I mean, first we see them as kids and they're so cute and likable as kids. So there is that, but also it is that relatability. Even if we just saw them as adults, I think we would have an element of like, intrigue and understanding again because it's like no we weren't fucking raised in a haunted house our mom was just mentally ill of course that's what you'd say yeah so yeah don't don't be afraid of writing unlikable characters because often the most interesting characters are unlikable. I also
1: i just really can't even think of like a popular thing from the past several decades that had completely likable characters in it think about the things that people talk about all the fucking time as like these scripts breaking bad
0: yeah the opposite
1: exactly you're gonna look me in the face and tell me that the best shows have likable characters consistently the best shows that people go crazy for that people love have complex characters I don't know anybody that watched Game of Thrones because of how good and nice everybody was on it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Like, if you were watching Game of Thrones and, like, the only people you liked were the Starks, you are so fucking boring to me. I that's love all the starks too. i love the starks too but again that's what i'm saying it would be like watching game of thrones and thinking that the only valuable characters to you were the starks because they are concretely likable and like... not
0: even just the starks only like Half Ned, of and Ned and <laughs> like maybe john and rob not sansa because she whines and not you know catelyn because she
1: you is know, a hates woman on
0: john Right. Uh, You know, like I mean, we don't want to get too deep into Game of Thrones. But that's that's sort of the point is that a lot of these characters are very human and flawed and that's what we find compelling. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to talk about kind of going off of that was this show is an adaptation. It is an adaptation of The Haunting Hill House by Shirley Jackson, which is, of course, where Shirley, the character, gets her name. Stephen, the writer, is, of course, Stephen King. Um, I hope if you followed this that you maybe put that together. Maybe not. If you didn't, fun fact. But the book is very different than the show. They're both gothic horrors about the evil Hill House and the ghosts within it. They both deal with mental illness. They both have characters with the same names and some overlap in personalities. But even, frankly, the Nell in the show and the Nell in the books are wildly different. I don't know how Mike Flanagan actually pitched this show. But I kind of feel like, whether it was in his head or not, he was sort of thinking, like, oh, I'm going to do Hill House, but like a soap opera. Like a classic, like, Shakespearean melodrama.
1: That's what you know? I – Melodrama is absolutely how I would put it. It does have that Shakespearean quality.
0: Where it's a family drama, like it's taking this thing that was previously not a family drama and sort of like pulling it into a more personal space. Mm-hmm. And I, I love – I think The Haunting of House is one of the scariest and most moving books of all time. But I think that the TV show touches me even more on a personal level because it is a family drama. And that's something that is so immediately, again, getting back to relatability. It's relatable. Even if you don't have siblings, you know you have some relationship with parents. I'm sure you have friends who are almost like siblings to you, and that's where Shakespeare's you know bread and butter was was sort of these really complicated fucked up family dynamics, and then heightening the emotions of that and making it sort of this almost like symbolic, larger than life narrative. And that's what Hill House does. Yeah, is it takes the the ghosts and the horror and makes them metaphors for very real issues, and so it touches us and it Mm -hmm. instantly connects with us you know it's the humanity underneath the horror
1: not to bring succession into everything but it has the it's the succession thing too of you create these set pieces and these sort of scenarios that are large and larger than life and draw you into this new world and then you use it all for the purpose basically and the structure of breaking it down to as like small and intimate as possible so we have this grand house this grand sort of like world we're in now basically a supernatural world and all of that only works to service what is really like the small one-on-one stuff and all of the best scares on this show all of the best scares on this show in my opinion are the small scares and the things that are what's scarier than like being alone than being alone in your bed and feeling, feeling a, the bent neck lady creep up behind you or feeling the hand drape around that's your Theo's, waist this, i
0: mean this is a, a spoiler but I, well, I won't get into too much detail but the hand spoiler for theo yeah. is that's one of the scariest i remember that just making me like yeah. i break out in a sweat yeah. like I, it's it not so a huge it's
1: not a huge spoiler but there is there is a scene in which a phantom hand essentially wraps itself around young theo while she she's in bed and she thinks it's her sister it's the classic that's straight
0: out of the book by the way and they're not oh. they're not sisters but she it is theo and it's not Shirley. it's nell in the book uh and nell's like oh you were holding my hand all night and theo is like no i wasn't and, and Nell's like wait well then who was holding my hand it's oh, it's, it's just... urban legend stuff too yeah. it's like
1: the very classic like you reach down to pet your dog under the bed and he licks your hand but when you wake up in the morning the dog is dead and right. there's a note that says <laughs> people can lick too it's just like it's absolute classic oh shit pit in your stomach type right. scares that this show does so well of like well it's the dramatic irony of it too of how much of the time we know that something is happening to a right. character before they know. I appreciate how little this show indulges in, like, the jump scare.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can't it's even scarier really... for it. And
1: it's scarier for it.
0: It's There are jump scares. It, this has one of the best jump scares I've ever seen in Easily. this show. Anyone who's watched the show immediately knows what we're talking about, mm-hmm. and that's where I'll leave it for now. But the, the scare that I t- told you that I that's always stands out to me and is the scariest, for me, scare in the first episode is that scene with Live Mm. uh, when she's chasing after Steve when his Mm -hmm. dad is carrying Mm -hmm. him and I think specifically the part before we even fully know what's going on where Hugh and Steve in his bedroom with the door locked and the doorknob just slowly turning one way and the other someone's trying to get in but you don't know who you don't know what what the fuck is going on it's terrifying I and then they run the building of tension and the running and Steve just gets a glimpse of his mom I was gonna say that glimpse
1: is. Like, to me, that was one of the shots that, like, stuck in my mind after we watched that pilot. Because it is horrifying. Because if you are paying attention, or if you've seen TV and movies, like, you have an inkling at that point. That's probably their mom. Right. That you, is probably live. idea of what is going on. It looks, I mean, it looks like her as yeah. we have seen her. But it also is, like... Even if it's not her, the only other option is it's a ghost, which is still scary. But to the visual of it, because now upon rewatch, when I can look at it knowing that it's Olivia, knowing that it's Liv and not a ghost for sure, it's like a wild, frantic movement she makes. It's so, She's limping. She's limping. It's like so very like... She looks more human. She looks like a human, where the ghosts look like ghosts on this show. And like you can now. It's visceral. It's visceral. That's the word for it. It is. We're like. Yeah. Just the fear of Steven uncovering his eyes for half a second and seeing like. A like mid, it's like a weird aborted like mid gesture. She's like lopsided. She's running. Her arms are flailing. She's completely shrouded in shadow. It is horrifying. It looks very human to me. Like very flawed in the way that she doesn't look like the ghosts and that's kind of what is almost like otherworldly about it kind and was, scary
0: by the way to all the performances in this show yeah. the show uh, the actors act the hell out of this even some of the kids are like some of the best little kid actors i've seen i mean it's... mckenna grace no. is now like in everything she's a freaking legend it is
1: the but... the five best kid actors i've ever seen in like one thing together stranger things you're fucking out <laughs> i don't want to hear it because also, like, the little ones are little, and they're I don't know if it's, I mean,
0: young, yeah. they're
1: good at kid actors, too. We've seen both of those kids in, like, a bunch of stuff recently now, too, and they're both only getting better, but I also have to wonder, just, like, Mike Flanagan seems like he's good at directing kids. He's gotta be, He yeah. has to be. He pulls really good performances out of them.
0: Yeah, 100%. Oh, yeah, but you know, on, the, on sort of the, the visceral nature of the scare, and... How a lot of the best scares work is it uh, works off of what I described last episode as Hitchcock's you know definition of suspense. It's the bomb under the table. Just mm-hmm. for as a quick recap, if you see two men eating dinner and they just suddenly explode, that's a surprise. That's you know will shock you, but it's temporary. It's superficial. It's not that affecting on the audience. But if you see someone plant a bomb under the table and then you see two men sit down and start to eat dinner. And you just hear the tick, tick, tick. That sticks with you. That stresses you out. That makes you predict the future. And that's at the core of a lot of horror mm-hmm. is showing us that there is a monster. Showing right. us that the kids don't see the monster. Yeah,
1: it's 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 dramatic irony Yeah. combined with your brain is putting a puzzle together when you're watching a movie. You've watched enough movies already, even if you think you haven't or you think that you don't understand movies that much you've watched enough movies to like understand how they go and to like put the sort of pieces together yourself 100%. and so it's very like valuable or I believe it is, and I know a lot of people believe, there's there's a lot of value to me and a lot of like excitement in something that, like you said, plants the bomb and gives you the leeway to speculate because it knows you're smart enough to understand what is being planted and the weight of what is being planted and that the reveal from that is going to be so much more satisfying to right. us than the really high satisfaction but really low reward of a shock of a surprise and it's
0: the best of both worlds when you can have the bomb under the table and see it explode in a way that you didn't see coming or see yeah exactly after, you know? i mean that's sort of what we get with the bent neck lady um and i again i want to do a spoiler section a little bit just to talk about it but... well
1: yeah we can put a spoiler warning on before
0: you know what i think we've kind of talked about a lot of it in pretty broad strokes <laughs> let's this is this is the spoiler warning for the rest of the show okay or if, if you go watch care, haunting
1: of hill house um, if you want and to finish. then come
0: back and listen to the rest of this or keep listening if you're cool and you've already watched the whole show because you fucking should. It's maybe the best horror show of all time.
1: And it'll take you like eight hours.
0: Yeah. Anyway, The Bent Neck Lady, one of the best reveals I've ever seen in a TV show, perfectly aligns with what you were saying about how the past is present mm-hmm. and how it's one of these big themes in the show and is literally built into the structure of the show that Nell goes back in time and it's so tragic now was, yeah. you look you, that's again one of the things I was talking about when you like re-watching it it's a completely different experience because you go through now and you see and it's sad now whenever you mm-hmm. see the Bitneck neck lady it's like still a freaky imagery but it's not it's not scary anymore it's like this deeply upsetting image that this little girl's faced with her death and She's literally it, yeah. looking at the moment she dies always always
1: when we find out that Nell has been, is the bent neck lady, has been the bent neck lady the whole time, it's like there's a cosmic horror to it on top of like yes. everything oh, else. This like yeah. existential of like, she has been her own tormentor. Have, yeah. and not through any fault of her own. It's like the most horrific tragedy where it's like, it's cyclical and that's the show's about circles a lot too the yes. show, that's why i even talk about circles about stacking circles on top of circles on this show because i see it as a very much a a circular cyclical show the way it's about time and the way it's about time as always and nell's stuck in a loop and it's like a paradox at what it point can Nell it literally
0: is yeah
1: is there at any point when nell can avoid that happening to her and really what it comes down to what's so sad is the only way that that doesn't happen to now is, is if no is if somebody else helps her is if well, anybody right. else she from the family helps yeah. her
0: and then and after she's dead that she i mean that's when she gets right the aid finally is at right. The end of the show that's the catharsis is she then has right. her parents with her but lives, even then maybe time
1: is forever she's still stuck in that loop technically she this Nell, the current Nell we see at the end of the series has found absolution and release. Right, but like I still think of the show as like it, it. It to me it brought up so many interesting questions about like right. time and the nature of it all that I still think of Nell as sort of being in that cycle in a way. She already was, and then she did it again. It's she's kind of doing it
0: forever not, in not a weird way. To get, I mean, I've been I've been reading so much about again with the last few episodes, the hero's journey and Carl Young. And that that's what's so tragic about this is that Nell is her own shadow. She's, you know, this sort of the darkness inside her is externalized by herself. Yeah. The thing that she spends her whole life being afraid of is herself. And that's just so sad. That's oh, awful. And that almost is sort of the entire show right mm-hmm. there. there. There is that sort of external threat, but these characters are their own worst enemies. Yeah. You know, they sort of ruin their own lives like, Steve blows up his marriage by being a shit. You know, yeah. Shirley almost does the exact same thing. Yeah. And thankfully they both managed to come back. I mean, it's a it's a relatively happy ending for a horror show, which I liked. I did too. The catharsis. But yeah, Theo won't let herself be happy. Luke, I mean, addiction is like the purest form yeah. of that. That you just can't sabotage yourself. Well, and I would like, yourself.
1: I would argue too for like, Steve's arc is so much about, like we were saying, like that guilt that he's like shoving down and projecting and now he's like he's become the neglectful older brother instead of the big older brother. And I think like Shirley to me, Shirley's arc is a lot about like forgiveness of herself and of her family. And that she has to like acknowledge what she's done wrong and yeah. like forgive herself for what she's I, done yeah, wrong. I agree with that. Um, And also do the same for her family because Shirley has all this resentment from basically having to become Steve and not wanting to. Like not having the desire to be the protective older sibling and then feeling like she has to. Shirley's my favorite. Shirley's such an interesting character to me.
0: Well, and and kind of going off of that, again, how we talked about how everything is very intentional in this and that how you can use the structure of the show... You know, in that sort of multiple timelines, Westworld way to actually be saying something that it's not just there to be like surprising and to be a mystery box that like there can be a very intentional purpose to it that plays into the conflict, into the characters, into the themes and the transitions with knowing where things go. It kind of highlights the tragedy of the characters and then makes us care that much more when, you know, we see Steve and Luke be really close and steve be such a good older brother and luke be so cute and so innocent and that scene of them in the tree house the quote tree house the red room has elements of creepiness building up who's abigail like what why right. are there these wide open mouth things that little baby luke is drawing and it then immediately is paralleled by steve encountering luke see, robbing him yeah. having broken into his house That's a great way to use flashbacks is as sort of in parallel to what you're doing in the present building up, you know, that's sort of an emotional bomb under the table. If you think about it is it's not like it's it's not creating suspense in the traditional like sort of plot like ticking clock momentum. It's this sort of emotional like, oh, you know, I mean, you know, the subtext, I guess is what it is, is, you know, the subtext of that scene is, you know, where they came from. Yeah. You know, you know that Steve and Luke used to be like the best friend. They loved each other. They worked together. And now you have them in their cold. Mm-hmm. And they can hardly talk to each other. Luke doesn't even have it in him to explain the fact that he's robbing Steve to help someone. Steve would give him that money if right. he told Steve. Right. That's the tragedy of their families. They, like, can't communicate anymore. Everything is broken down. Yeah. It hurts so much more because we just saw them being so loving. And likewise, in the entire structure of the episode, if, again, getting on how intentional this all is. This, why I love this so much is there's constantly stuff you can pick on I mean, we could make a whole podcast talking about this show. It's so just powerful and so intentional and so so well-crafted. The whole episode builds to that moment at the end, not just as a scare. Yes, it's freaky having Nell now dead, popping up in Steve's face. But
1: that's not even close to what's impactful about that
0: scene. No, it's... it's well, I mean, first of all, she's dead. Like, holy fuck, Nell is right. dead. Second of all, Steve has spent the entire episode being like ghosts aren't real ghosts aren't real the title of the episode steven sees a ghost he finally gets it that's his inciting incident. i mean that's the inciting incident for the entire show arguably is that steve now he's caught in it Mm -hmm. he can't like they none of them can escape at the very least that's drawing them all back in yeah
1: at the very least yeah that's steve's inciting incident 100 percent.
0: right i mean i think he helps them like but i even
1: i was thinking in terms of like that last scene it's the practical reveal of like Steven sees a ghost finally after talking the whole episode about how he doesn't and again it's the emotional hit more than anything of like he comes in bitching at Nell he like comes in with with a bad fucking attitude all she has done all day is call her siblings to try to get somebody to listen and pay attention she thinks there's something going on with Luke and everybody's brushing it off and Steve comes in doesn't bring a single thing up about any of this is just bitching at her and then to get the phone call that nell's dead and she's standing right there
0: it's fucked up it's scary and it's sad and it's
1: so sad like i the first and time you can't talk yes the it's first like time a
0: metaphor I... for their entire relationship yeah. is she can't voice what she's feeling
1: that was another image from the pilot that stuck with me is the very last shot after Nell's disappeared of just Steve sitting alone in his big empty apartment, because like that to me, that's the scariest shot is when we cut away and she's gone. Yeah. Cause there's also this thing of like, that's the last time he'll see her as far as we know in this moment. Like that's it. Nellie's dead. And the last time he's going to see her is not only this horrific, like scary scare. It's that in the next moment she's immediately gone. And we pan out, and it's just Steve alone, like, sitting on the floor in his, like, he's no gone. furniture apartment because he's all by himself, and yeah. his dad's on the phone. So he's not actually alone, but to Steve, he's alone.
0: Right. I mean, that's a big thing, too, that Steve feels like his dad abandoned him. Yeah. When you even know, in the, that, I love- very be- be- beginning, his dad won't open up with him, Yeah. and so Steve's like- well, that's how it is then. Yeah. I mean, well, that's his Hugh, paternal, like father figure. That's how yeah. he thinks a man should act. He's like, we don't talk about it.
1: Yeah. Well, and Hugh, like, for as much as he's not this perfect father figure for a lot of reasons, like, I love the way that episode ends with him still on the line with Steve. Because he it give still up. is No, that's not what, whoever gives up. No, and that's never been what he's been about. And it's the tragedy of Hugh as well is this like nobody believes or understands him and he still has to choose to do and does choose to do what he believes will be best for the kids and what will protect them and ultimately i believe it's the wrong choice and i think that's kind of what the show is saying is that hugh does make the wrong choice by trying to protect them
0: i think that's why he has to die at the end yeah it's sort of in a symbolic way like he has to suffer because he was the dad and he did the, made the wrong choices yeah. trying to protect them. He, he lied to them their entire lives. Right. Well, he never and, helped them. How are they going to process something that they don't even understand? And
1: also, how are they going to know to never go back to Hill House? Right. It's just a very practical thing, too, of Nellie. If Nellie had had more of a concept from Hugh of what the fuck happened in Hill House, she would not have had a therapist convince her to go back to it. You, it's this thing, again, of like... So many of the grander problems of the show could have been solved by somebody communicating about them say, 20 like years one ago. Of,
0: one of the main themes of this entire show is just families have to communicate with one another yeah. and not put things off, not put it aside. And that's on the parents more than anything, certainly. that You have to talk to your kids and you you all have to talk to each other and listen. It's not just about talking. It's about listening yeah. to, loving one another in that way. Because that, that is that's where the entire family mm-hmm. fell apart. Yeah, was they did not talk about what they were experiencing Liv did not talk to Hugh so he could not help her really until it was too late mm-hmm. by the time she finally opens up it's too late and Hill House is inside her head Yeah, it's so sad I mean that's the tragedy Is that that's I think where a lot of us you know feel like even in the best most communicative families there are times where you just don't get it right and that's yeah. what's so scary about it is well what if you fuck up on communicating this thing that you think maybe is little that you think you can put off and it blows up your entire family. Yeah. What if that little thing that you thought I can take this alone was something really big, was something very scary and threatening? It's also about yeah vulnerability and not feeling like you have to take on the world by yourself. And that families have to confront it together. Yeah. You know is a lot of what this show is about and why it's so moving and so impactful.
1: I mean, yeah, that's the most that's the most obvious one in that the show's opening and the show's end are direct parallels because Steve reads. Basically the prologue to his book of the haunting of Hill House. Which and is almost
0: straight from the actual book. Yeah, exactly.
1: Which I also think is such a neat way to adapt it. Oh yeah. Because I I mean we could talk for days about how they've adapted this too, yeah. as not at all a direct adaptation, but I but um
0: That whoever walked there walked alone. Let, yes, then,
1: yes, yes. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah I yeah, knew what you the, exactly saying. I know. Yeah. The
1: opening is Whoever, Yeah, those who walked at Hill House walked alone. And then the last line at the very end is, and those who walk at Hill House walk together.
0: And it's cathartic, and that's what it's all about. That's what yeah. the is all about. It's
1: literally direct. It's the clearest arc imaginable. I love it.
0: It's great. Yeah, you don't have to over-explain it, make it overly complicated. Sometimes, you know, it's that simple. Family has to come back together, and you have to talk to one another. I think
1: it's interesting, too, that, like, that is the overall what like I think the main lesson of the show is there's a lot of themes in the show but like I do think the lesson the lesson ends up being one about like yeah coming together with your family communicating with each other and I also think it's interesting that that's reflected by come home by Liv's come home which is like it's both kind of the lesson of the show and also the temptation at the same time there's... which
0: is the that's the great thing with horror is it's often those two are like kind of tied together as your salvation is tied so closely to like what scares you what's whatever the danger is yeah you
1: know? what ultimately does save them in the end is that they all come home is that they all go back and exactly li- oh yeah live turns the porch light on essentially and they all have to go home yeah i love that the turning the porch light on
0: it's so great what a great oh. like call. That, I mean, that's that's one direct thing to learn too, and again, a very specific part, like type of craft, which is plants and payoffs. Mm-hmm. If that's, you introduce something early on and then use it in a different way, it can mean something different.
1: And they do that with gets, come home and the porch light, like a dozen times where yeah. it works because in episode two, right, is when we learn that Olivia has that rule for the kids that they can go out and play and they can go out and play on the grounds but when she turns the porch light on it's time to come home and they all know it and it's set up great and then later at the very end of the episode when Shirley has this like model of a house sitting in her office and she's out of the room and everybody's out of the room and it's just the house in the office and then the porch light goes on
0: it's so good
1: that shit Goes crazy. That is such a good moment. Cause it in hindsight you watch the first episode and you see Nell like sitting in her car in front of Hill House and we the like come see the lights come on and it's scary enough in yeah. that moment to just be like, That empty house's lights all fucking came on. But in hindsight, you know who turned them on. Oh yeah. It's not the house.
0: It's Liv It's Olivia. Oh, Plans and payoffs. They can be so... And I powerful.
1: think I think that's why it works for me in the end that Liv is this, like... For a character who is the antagonist in many ways or is an antagonist and a villain in some ways, like, she also still gets her happy ending yeah. in a way in the end with Hugh and with Nell. And I like that for this show because that's kind of... And ultimately ends up being what this show... Is more about it's like that that horror thing you were saying of like how closely tied our fears are to our values and to our like salvation is so yeah. close to our downfall that Liv is a character who like was in pursuit of doing best by her family and everything yeah. she did was for the direct purpose of like the opposite of what happened
0: and so that's part of why it's so scary when she goes bad is she, she's trying to save the kids from what she thinks is like a world that's the world outside hill house is too scary it's gonna yeah. eat them right up that's what poppy says
1: eat them right up
0: so she thinks she's saving little luke yeah. and little nell yeah by giving them their cup full of stars
1: oh she it, is not she is poisoning them no
0: it's horrible and
1: she does not that, succeed that is
0: definitely not in fact a good way to save your kids
1: no it doesn't work Um,
0: But yeah, the the family comes together in life and in death.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's kind of how it feels in the end.
0: Which is also part of why it's not like, I don't understand the people who think it's too happy. First of all, we deserve some level of catharsis after how much horrifying trauma we've been put through. I mean, that's just my opinion. Obviously, it's all very subjective, everything we're talking about. But second of all, Nell and Hugh and Liv are still there. They're still stuck in Hill House. And they have each other, but they're dead. I think about like...
1: I don't know exactly why people don't enjoy the happy ending on this i know that there's some element of people are like i wanted to see something fucked up and i'm like i can get that i just don't know how you get through eight or nine episodes of this show and not understand what it's about right to think that it needs to have like a depressing ending well, that's I, not what the like show is saying and i don't know how you come out of this thinking that there's a sad ending to this show that's impactful or that
0: that's as satisfying yeah, as satisfying
1: as like what is I mean, it what would it mean like you can still teach the same lesson i guess by being like so they never come back together. Right. They never get over their flaws and they all die for it. You can do that. You're also doing that for all other nine episodes. We're already seeing right. why it's, it's a problem no to change, not come together.
0: Right? It gets repetitive. Yeah,
1: it, yeah it would be repetitive. I mean,
0: I think that's why a lot of times people say, you know, stories are about change, about transformation. And, and I think, I don't think that's always true, but I think that's why so often the most impactful ones are. Yeah. Because in a very even in a superficial way like we want to watch things like change like we don't want to watch the same thing over and over again no
1: we don't no exactly we don't want to watch stagnation and i mean most characters have an arc whether you meant to give them one or whether it's a particularly good one pretty naturally most of the time we're looking to see people change in some direction we're looking to see a change i
0: think part of why I don't actually think the ending is probably that divisive. I just think there's a specific loud subsect of, like, horror fans. Right, I feel the same way. For whom it is. And, and even then, those people will just still generally say that the, the show is, like, amazing. But I think it comes from, I think horror attracts some people, at least when they're watching horror, they want that nihilism. They want a level of, like, yeah. that horror is all about warnings more than it is even about just, like, Catharsis, yeah, and that for them it's all—it's always about sort of that darkest ending. That's what they expect and what they want when they see it, which is why they're disappointed. Personally, that's not the case for me. I mean, I'm a big Stephen King fan. I I, I can I mean, enjoy it, like I can enjoy uh, *Hereditary*, I, but I much prefer when there's a level of catharsis. I would
1: also say that's a—I don't think it's an, a super accurate assessment when people talk about like horror movies categorically being like nihilistic and having like like you said those warning endings cuz i just think that's kind of just not really the case no it definitely isn't the for the majority board. of horror for the majority of horror i would say that it's like any other genre you in which the range. ending yeah is going to be a range of things yeah. i understand that want for the for the cautionary tale horror movie however one, on one hand, I think nine episodes of something is going to make for a significantly preachier, cautionary tale.
0: It's also from the very first, talking about plans and payoffs, that's not what the show promises in that right. opening. Right, exactly. It promises a family that loves each other. Yeah. And works together maybe is in a horrible, creepy, scary house, yeah. but it's not like we open with them like traumatizing each other. We open with them as a family. Yeah. We see all the pictures of them as a family, loving each other. We don't see all that's broken. Right. Yeah, we see all their, their, that they're building, literally. Yeah. My soapbox that I want to go on really quick, because I come from a lot of fantasy and sci-fi circles where these hard magic systems are the big end thing. You don't have to explain everything. There's so much about the ghosts and magic powers, the psychic powers in this, that we don't understand. I'd actually
1: prefer to have... None of it explains. I
0: agree. We don't know how the ghost can somehow leave Hill House, but also not at times. Like, how does that work? Nell is anywhere and everywhere she wants to be. Yeah. Uh, Except
1: probably not, because it doesn't even seem like she's choosing
0: where she wants to be. Right, she just gets thrown around. Right. right, like
1: the Steve thing, like her appearing in Steve's apartment. Again, we don't need these explanations to these questions, because I'm too fascinated by the questions themselves of like, does Ghost Nell like choose to go to Steve? Does she know she can get there and maybe right. hopefully reach him, or is it again that more like visceral, uncontrollable thing, like when she becomes the bent neck lady of like she's just being pulled, like she is the spirit who knows what she's
0: tied to anymore? Right, uh, exactly. I mean, I God, I, it's horrifying. To and that, that is that what's scary is that weird are... throne. She's like, this is my chance. I can talk to Steve, and then she can't talk to Steve. Mm-hmm. Oh, so sad and so scary. Yeah. There's well, so much existential horror in this.
1: I was going to say that's what sits with me the most the longer I the more times I rewatch it and think about it. And even the first time I watched, the stuff that hit me hardest is those those existential grief things. And I bring this up all the time, but in the 6th episode, Two Storms is the Maybe title the of best the episode.
0: episode.
1: My favorite episode, definitely. Yeah. It's the first episode where the whole family is together oh, at so the good. same time. Episode 6 is shot in like a series of oneers, basically. There are very few cuts in it. It's like watching a play. I go crazy for this episode. And I say it's the only time that the whole family is together because they're not really because Nell is dead. There's this sadness of like, this is the first time any of they've all been together in forever, and they're not all together, actually. They're right. always gonna be not together now. They're always, or to them in that episode, they're always gonna be not all. Five of them, not all six of them. But to Nell, Nell is there. And Nell's a ghost to them. I'm going to cry. Nell's a ghost to them throughout that episode. And we see her trying to get their attention. We don't see Nell much. I think we see, like, one glimpse of her, like, halfway through.
0: Yeah. And then
1: again at the end of that episode because... that
0: ending, oh, that hurt. So, yeah,
1: so what happens is she is trying to get their attention and she puts the buttons on her own corpse's eyes and she knocks her own like coffin down and we don't see her doing any of it we just see it as ghost shit so who knows who's doing it who knows what's going on when all of these weird ghostly things are happening and while all of this is going on we're cutting back to this scene from the past where it's this big storm at Hill House and the whole family is together trying to take care of each other and Nellie gets lost And they can't find Nellie in the house. And little Nellie, when they do find her, she just appears out of nowhere. And she does that. She goes, I was right here the whole time. I was right here the whole time and none of you could see me. And then they cut back to the present. And it's Nell as a ghost. I am crying. Just looking at them and it's little Nell's voice. And she was there the whole time. I'm on new birth control. This has been happening a lot this week but it's heartbreaking and it's scary because it's like to, to them they're all experiencing the horror of being haunted and to her she's experiencing the horror of being like abandoned and totally left
0: and that's like the whole show right there oh it's dude the horror and the tragedy dude. just overlaid together circles and the, circles i
1: was there the whole time and none of you could see me
0: um this has been a great episode we're running out of time i mean there's so much more i could Say about it for years. I love it so much. It's truly one of my favorites. Yeah, thank you for listening. Uh, again, please check out the Patreon, check out all the socials. Hannah, you want to tell them again where they can find you?
1: Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Normal Sexy Lady. You can also find me on TikTok at Hannah Shichelsky. Um You can spell that using.
0: It'll be in the liner notes. The, the
1: liner notes. <laughs>
0: Thanks again for listening. My name is Carl Albert and this has been Pop Craft.
1: My name is Hannah Szaszelski. This has also been Pop Craft.
0: But my name is Carl Albert and this has been Pop Craft.
1: I was also on Pop Craft today. That's so crazy.
0: I recorded Pop Craft. Uh, done now. You were on Pop Craft today?